like for you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that is really near and dear to my heart. Um, it's a tough message from the Lord, but uh, I really love what the Lord is telling us here in this passage. John chapter 13. young man went to McDonald's for lunch one day. And when he got there, he saw an elderly couple sitting down to lunch at a table. He grabbed his meal and he came and sat down just a couple of tables away from them. He noticed that this older couple had just ordered one meal. They had uh, one meal, an extra drink, or I'm sorry, a drink and an extra cup. One meal, a drink, and an extra cup. As the young man watched, the gentleman carefully divided the hamburger exactly in half. And then he watched as the older man counted out the fries. One for you, one for me. One for you, one for me. Making sure that they each had half of the fries. Then he poured half of the soft drink into the extra cup and set it in front of his wife. The older man then began to eat. And his wife sat watching with her hands folded in her lap. The young man was touched by this scene. He figured that the older couple must be on a fixed income and they couldn't afford a lunch for each of them. And so he walked over and asked if they would allow him to purchase another meal so that they each could have a meal rather than having to split the one meal. The elderly gentleman said, Oh no, we've been married 50 years and everything has always been and always will be shared 50-50. The young man then asked the wife if she was going to eat. And she replied, no, not yet. It's his turn with the teeth. <laughs> 50 50, that's sharing. But what I want you to get tonight is that's also true love. <laughs> that is love. Do any of you remember back when the older George Bush was vice president of the United States? Anybody remember that? Okay, vice president of the United States. He decided that he was going to run for president. And uh, during that campaign, he chose a man by the name of Dan Quayle as his running mate. Now, Dan Quayle is from Huntington, Indiana, not too far from Fort Wayne. Uh, Fort Wayne being the largest, the, the closest larger town uh, to Huntington. And so they decided that they would have a rally in Fort Wayne, which would be their first rally to kick off their campaign. Vice President Bush and then Senator Dan Quayle came to Fort Wayne, where Becky and I were living at the time. I was working in radio and uh, along with pastoring a church and I was a member of the press during this time. And so I applied for a press pass, for press credentials for this rally. Um, when the time came, um, I had to submit an application. I was interviewed by the Secret Service. They did a background check on me. They put me through a metal detector or wanded me, I can't remember right offhand, and finally decided that I was okay. 
Little did they know. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And because they concluded that I was okay, uh, they issued to me press credentials for this particular rally. Now, if you can imagine that this is a gymnasium, there's a basket at that end and a basket at that end. This gymnasium had a stage along one side of the gymnasium. About two-thirds of the way back, they had built a corral uh, with a fence, like you'd, a pen like you'd put animals in. They built this corral, and uh, we found out that that was for the press. And we were escorted to this corral and told not to leave the fenced area. Of course, we had a badge to wear, so we were allowed to be in there because we had this badge. Um, I had wanted to bring it tonight to, to let you know that I'm not making this story up, but it's been a few years and I forgot to bring the badge. For the second time today, I forgot to bring the badge. little badge that said, the visit of the vice president, and underneath it in big letters it said press. Now, this badge that they gave to me marked me. I was a marked person. Um, everybody could tell that I was a member of the press because of this badge. If a secret servant agent walked by, secret service agent could tell that I was allowed to be there just at a quick glance because of this mark uh, that they hung around my neck. I was allowed to be there. I had a badge. Now, the press had to get there early. So we got there early and they hustled us into this corral because it was about time for the public to come in. When the time came, they opened a door back in the corner and the public came in, no metal detector, no wand, no application, no interview with the Secret Service, no background check. I guess you just can't trust those news people. Had to be careful. And they got to walk right up to the stage. You know, I was thinking, man, I'm going to get to see Dan Quayle up close and in person and Vice President Bush and, and uh, maybe even shake their hand. And I had to practically use binoculars to see them. And the public walked right up. I want us to think about that for a minute. Um, in fact, I want us to think about that throughout the message. This, this badge, this credential, this mark that they gave to me. As kingdom people, those that have been born into God's family, part of His kingdom, we have been born with a birthmark. We have upon us a birthmark, a spiritual birthmark that distinguishes us as belonging to Him. It is our badge. It becomes our credentials. It proves that we belong to Him. And I want us to see that in our passage tonight in John chapter 13. If you'd like to find verse 31, we'll start there. John chapter 13 and verse 31. Therefore, when He was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It is important for us as Christ followers, those that bear the name of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to be talking about thinking about, learning about kingdom living, being kingdom people, what it means to be part of God's kingdom. And this evening, I'd like for us to look at what I've entitled the mark of kingdom people. The mark of kingdom people. And um, if you're taking notes, this is more of a study than a, than a typical sermon. And um, there, there's a an outline here for you to take notes and jot down. I'd like for us to first of all look at the mark given. The mark given. Just like at the uh, press conference, I was given this mark, this identifying credential, this badge to wear around my neck. We have, as believers in Christ, as Christ's disciples, we have new credentials. We have new identifying badges issued to us as disciples. Jesus said in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. He tells us, first of all, that this is a command that He gives to us. This is not optional. This is not do it if you like. The Lord requires this of us all. It's a command. These credentials that He gives to us, the credentials are to love one another. And He issues it as a command. What are these new credentials? What is the identifying mark? What is it that Jesus requires? Again, He requires that we, as believers in Christ, as children of God, he requires that we love one another. Now, Jesus says this is a new commandment. You mean up until this time people didn't have to love one another? Up until this time there was no love in the world? And that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Um, this new commandment um, has a very, very special meaning. Now, I don't often like to do this, but since this is somewhat of a Bible study, and I love to do word studies. One of my favorite things to do is to do word studies. Um, I'd like to share with you the fact that in the Greek, there are many words that are translated by the same word in the English language. For instance, you're well aware of the word love. In the English, we just write love. But in the Greek, they had eros, they had phileo, and they had agape. Three different Greek words, all translated, generally translated love in the English language. Well, in the same way, this word new uh, has many different meanings in the New Testament. And I'd like to share with you three Greek words. I, I don't like to do this often. But just so you know, they are very distinct and very 
unrelated in, in their origin. And the first word that I'd like to share with you is the word prospatos. Prospatos. You don't have to put that in your notes, but just know that it's a different word than the next two I'm going to mention. And prospatos means new in time. Probably the best way that we can bring it into English would be that it means fresh. Fresh. Let's say that um, before the service tonight, uh, I was uh, doing some work around the building, some, some physical labor around the building, and you know, I got all sweaty and my clothes were just a mess. And so I looked at my watch and said, oh, I can make it. I've got to run home and get some new clothes. So I run home and I change and I come back and I, I get here in time, but just barely. And somebody says, where were you? And I said, I had to run home and get new clothes. Now the clothes that I put on might have been, might be five years old. You know, they're not new in the sense of, of um, they just were purchased. They were just manufactured three months ago. But they're fresh. They're, they're new today to me, uh, new, new for me to wear today. So they're fresh clothes. I'll give you another illustration. If I am driving a 1988 Chevy Malibu, and I go and I buy a 2003 Chevy Malibu, I might pull into the parking lot and one of the staff might say, hey, you got a new car. Now, wait a minute, it's a 2003. It's 13 years old, almost 14. But we use that terminology. You got a new car. You got a different one. You got a fresh one. And uh, that's this term, prospatos. Now, also in Greek, there is the word neos. Neos, N-E-O-S would be the English a transliteration of that. And the word neos means belonging to the present. Now, how many of you have ever heard of uh, the neonatal ICU unit in the hospital? Okay, neo, neos, comes from neos, means new, a neonatal, newborn. Um, let me give you an illustration. If I have that 2003 Chevy Malibu that I traded for a while back, and I go out and I buy a 2016 Chevy Malibu with three miles on the odometer. Now I have a new car. I mean, it is new. It's current. It's up to date. It belongs to the present. That's neos. Now, I went through all those gymnastics to tell you neither one of those words are the ones used in John 13. Neither one of them. But there's a third Greek word, and that word is kainos. And kainos has a very different meaning with respect to the idea of new. Kainos means new in nature. It, it implies something better, something of higher excellence, something that's never been heard of before. So, I've got my 2016 Chevy Malibu, and I read about something in Popular Mechanics. Do they still... Make popular mechanics? That's interesting. Okay, good to hear. I haven't seen one for ages. And so I'm reading popular mechanics, and I find out about this 2017 car. I mean, you won't believe this car. This 2017 is an electromagnetic hover car. It has a top speed of 400 miles per hour, and it runs five years on a $300 nuclear cell. And so I get me one. Now I really have a new car. I mean, it is new that you've never even seen one before. You maybe never even heard of one before. You can't even imagine what this car can do. It is new. 
It's not just newer in time. It is newer in concept. It's never been heard of before. It's a never-before-seen new kind of vehicle. That is the word that is used in John 13. When Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, He's talking about this kainos kind of new. New in nature. So totally, radically different than anything you've ever heard of or seen before. That's the nature of this commandment that Jesus is giving to His disciples. It is that new. New in nature. Wait a minute. Love can't be new. Love existed in the Old Testament, right? I mean, there's always been love. Well, that's not what this word is getting at. This command is new, but not because love is new, but because what he's asking of us is so radical. So we see the mark has been given to us. We have this birthmark that comes with being born into God's family. It identifies us. It marks us. It proves who we belong to. Secondly, I'd like for us to look at the mark displayed. Now, when I was at this rally for Vice President Bush, I had to wear my badge. I had to hang it around my neck and it had to be right out here for everybody to see. If I took my badge and says, oh, that's nice, I, I want to keep it nice, and so I stick it in my back pocket, first time I pass, pass a Secret Service agent and he wonders what in the world I'm doing and they're wandering around, he'll have no way of knowing that I'm allowed to be in there, that I'm okay, that they've already told me I'm okay. But if he can't see it, he'll never know. So this mark must be displayed. It must be right out there where it can be readily seen. Jesus said in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. These new credentials that we've been given, this identifying badge of kingdom people, is that we love one another. And we are to display it. It is to be out there. We are to let others see this love that we have for one another. I can remember a time in my life where a good friend of mine got involved in some serious sin. Um, he, was, he was a close friend, and uh, we had a, a good relationship. And he got involved in this sin and um, was not wanting to give it up, was not wanting to let go of it. And uh, Becky and I talked about it and we prayed about it. Uh, really fervently. And I came to the conclusion that I needed to confront my friend about his sin. But I began to rationalize this. You know, if I confront him, that'll break the relationship. And if the relationship's broken, I won't be able to input into his life. You know, right now I just need to be a friend to him. Then I came across a verse that says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Open rebuke is better than secret love. 
Oh, that cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. If I was keeping my confrontation, my uh, accountability secret, keeping my mouth shut, I really didn't love him. If I really loved him, I would say something. I would display that love even though it would be in a very tough, difficult way. I didn't want to do it because I just, in, in my mind, I just knew it would break the relationship. But the Lord really brought conviction upon me. And so finally I went and I confronted my friend. And it broke the relationship. The relationship was broken. I had no more input into his life. A friend that I was close to, we no longer spoke. We went a few years that way. In fact, I'm guessing probably ten years that way. There's a a verse, I believe it's in Proverbs, uh, and I can only paraphrase it for you. It's been a while since I've quoted it. But this verse says that um, he that confronts another will in the end gain greater favor. In the end gain greater favor. I had not read that before. It didn't say that if you confront somebody, it's going to go really well, and you'll be an even better friend than you are now. It said, in the end, he will gain more favor. About 10 years after the break in the relationship, my wife and I were living in Kansas. I was pastoring out there in Kansas, and my friend called, and he wanted to call, first of all, to apologize. Apologize for the sin apologize for breaking off the relationship. And then he told me that being confronted by his sin caused him to really think about what he was doing. And he turned back to the Lord. He got his life right with the Lord. God restored the relationship with his wife. And Eventually, uh, God used him uh, in, um, in a ministry in a local church, not paid staff, but in a ministry in a local church. But that love had to be displayed. It had to be shown. This badge, this credential that God has given to us that marks us as belonging to him needs to be shown. As Jesus hung there on the cross, do you think Jesus was thinking, this is not fair. I don't deserve to be here. I've done nothing wrong. That Tim Yazel guy, he deserves to be here, but I don't. This is not right. No, Jesus didn't think that. Um, He displayed love. How do we display love? We display love the way Christ displayed love. We are to love one another the way Christ loved us. We are to sacrifice for one another. I am to sacrifice my agenda, my dreams, 
my goals, my preferences, my wishes and wants for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because of the nature of Jesus' love for us. The nature of His love for us. What was that nature? What did it look like? Well, being a Baptist preacher, I've got a three-point outline inside of a three-point outline. So uh, you get a double dose here this evening. Uh, I'm sure that there are many other characteristics to Christ's love, but I want to describe at least three of them here tonight. First of all, His love was an unselfish love. An unselfish love. Even in the best of us, there's still an element of self. And self keeps getting in the way. Self gets in the way of being what God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do. We are concerned that we don't get taken advantage of, that we are not unfairly treated, that we are not deprived of what is rightfully ours. When Jesus was going to the cross in our place, His thoughts were not on Himself. Not on how he was being abused or how he was being cheated. His thoughts were not on how others were being unfair with him. His thoughts were unselfishly on us. Even though we deserve to be on that cross, not he, his thoughts were on us. Secondly, his love is an unlimited love. He was willing to sacrifice everything for us. He was willing to do whatever it took to redeem us and to reconcile us back to God. Why? Because of His unlimited love. I get real nervous. Well, let me just be honest with you. I get real upset when people try to limit God's love. When they try to put restraints on God's love. You know, if I say that uh, Jesus died for Tom because he chose Tom, but he didn't choose Steve, so he didn't die for Steve. I've just limited God's love. God doesn't love Steve. He only loves Tom. His love is limited. If I start doing that kind of thing. You've heard of limited atonement? That Jesus only died for those that He chose in advance and those that didn't get chosen He didn't die for? That puts a limit on God's love. And Jesus' love, I guarantee you, Jesus' love is unlimited. He made no demand on those around Him to to meet his every need. He made no demand on those that were near the cross to take up arms and fight the Romans and get him off that cross. There was no path set before Jesus Christ that was too great for him. If love meant that he must endure the cross, then so be it. Now granted, Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way than going to the cross, then 
let this cup pass from me. Don't send me to the cross if there's any other way to get this done. But Jesus knew there wasn't. God knew there wasn't. The only way that man could be redeemed back to God and reconciled to God was if Jesus went to the cross. And he knew that he must endure the cross. And then third, his love was an unconditional love. Jesus knows us through and through. There's not a nook or cranny of us that he does not know. And sad to say, he knows we will let him down. He knows we will blow it at times. He knows that often we will act in our own best interest or what we think is our own best interest. Yet, Jesus loves us. He loved us just as we were. He loved us back to God back into relationship. And now here in John 13, he turns the tables and he commands us to love our fellow Christians just as he does. We are to love each other just as he loves us. We are to love each other even when other people don't act right. We are to love each other even when they don't treat us fairly. We are to love other people even when they don't deserve it. Because, truth be known, none of us deserves it. We are to love one another. What would happen if the church in America really loved one another just as Jesus loves us? What would happen to the church in America if believers would love each other unconditionally, unselfishly? If believers would love each other sacrificially, what would happen to the church in America if we really loved each other as He loves us. And then our third main point, we've seen the mark given and the mark displayed. I want us finally to look at the mark evaluated. The mark evaluated. When I was at that rally for um, Vice President Bush, as I was walking around, a Secret Service agent, a local police officer, uh, a member of the Bush campaign, could take one glance at my credentials and evaluate whether I was where I should be or not. They could evaluate me based on my credentials. They could say, he's for real. Now, if everybody had, um, I, think, I think the pass was black ink on a cream-colored card stock, uh, if everyone had that and mine was red ink on green card stock, Uh, they'd know there's something not right about me. They could evaluate me based on my credentials. They could determine that I belong there. Well, Jesus said in verse 35, By this 
shall all men know that ye are my disciples if, little two-letter word, but it's huge, if ye have love one to another. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? This, this is, oh, this is heavy duty. This is powerful. This is what captured me in this text. Jesus is saying, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. They'll take one look at you. They'll see this badge that you're wearing, the credentials that you have, and by looking at the credentials, the credentials are what? Love for one another. The world will look at us and determine based on what they see whether or not we're for real. Now, they may be wrong, but they will make a determination as to whether or not we're for real. In other words, God has given the lost the right to judge us on the basis of our love for one another. Did you get that? He's given the lost world the right to judge us based on our love for one another. Now I can see them judging us on whether or not we love them. And that's important to love them. But Jesus said, I'm giving the lost the right to look at you and judge you based on whether or not you love one another. Well, yeah, but that guy over there on the other side of the room, you don't know what he's like. I, I can't love him. You don't know what she did to me. I can't love her. But Jesus has given the lost world the right to judge on the basis of our love for each other. Now, I don't like to read to you a lot, but I came across two um, passages in two different commentaries that are so powerful. And forgive me for reading, but I'm going to take the time to do this tonight. It's, they're not hugely long, but um, I want to read these to you. Uh, Barnes' New Testament note says this, Your love for each other shall be so decisive evidence that you are like the Savior that all men shall see and know it. It shall be the thing by which you shall be known among all men. You shall not be known by peculiar rites or habits, not by a peculiar form of dress or manner of speech, not by peculiar austerities and unusual customs like the Pharisees, the Essenes, or the scribes, but by deep, genuine, and tender affection. And it is well known it was this which eminently distinguished the first Christians and was the subject of remarks by surrounding pagans. In other words, lost people, pagans, when they saw a group of Christians, they would judge them based on what they saw. And the pagans would say this, See? See how they love one another? They are ready to lay down their lives for each other. I've actually known churches in cities where I've lived where they were ready to take up arms against each other. I can tell you of one in Fort Wayne where after a deacon's meeting, the deacons got into a shootout, hid behind their cars and were shooting out just like on Starsky and Hutch or whatever. Chips. No, I don't think they used guns on chips. What do those pagans say about us? He goes on and says, Alas, 
How changed is the spirit of the Christian world since then? Perhaps of all the commands of Jesus, the observance of this is that which is least apparent to the surrounding world. The thing that is least obvious to the lost world, he says, is our love for one another. It's not so much that they are divided into different denominations, but it is the lack of deep-felt, genuine love toward Christians even of our own denomination. The absence of genuine self-denial, the pride of rank and wealth, and the fact that professed Christians are often known by anything else rather than by true attachment to those who bear the same Christian name and image. The true Christian loves equally a prince or a slave, in the mansion of wealth or in the cottage of poverty, on the throne or in the hut of poverty. He overlooks the distinction of sect, of color, of nations, and wherever he finds a man who bears the Christian name and manifests the Christian spirit, he loves him. It's powerful. Another commentary writes this, and it's much shorter. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. The love and self-sacrifice of Christians has done more to extend the name of Christ than argument. He's saying our love for one another will extend the name of Christ much better than being able to come up with great theological arguments. The unbeliever is given the right to judge the Christian based on the love we have for one another. If we are to be a church with the heart for outreach, get this, if we are to be a church with the heart for outreach, if we are to be a lighthouse to our community, we must be known for our love for one another. That's the first thing they'll notice. When Becky and I got married, our ushers were all dressed in black tuxes and rented black I think back then they were patent leather shoes. Except for one of my ushers who came in a black tux and brown shoes. The first thing everybody noticed were the brown shoes. And he's saying, what is the first thing that the lost notice when they look at us? What's the first thing they notice? He says it should be our love. If we are to be a church with the heart for outreach, if we are to be a lighthouse to our community, we must be known for our love for one another. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In other words, what this passage is saying is that the apostles were able to testify in power because the believers lived in love and in unity. Unbelievers often ask, is there anything to this Christianity stuff? Is it for real? Does Christ really make a difference in people's lives or are these Christians just like the rest of us? And I wonder if a 
man or woman without Christ walked into most churches today that name the name of Christ? Would they see the kind of love and acceptance that's talked about in this new command? Or would they see dissension, backbiting, gossip, jockeying for position, fighting for my own rights, my own wants, my own preferences, and power, and selfishness, and discrimination? Or would they see the church as a place of understanding and encouragement? We are being watched. We are being watched. I know for a fact that Christianity is real. I don't doubt it for a second. Christ does make a difference. And my prayer is that when those who are seeking the answer to all that's wrong in their lives, those that are searching for hope in Jesus Christ, will take a look at us and that they will continue to see us fulfilling our Lord's new command to love one another. What badge are you wearing tonight? Let's pray. I know this message has been entirely almost to to believers, to Christians. Um, My prayer is that we would make a decision to follow this command of John 13 and that the world will take note and say, wow, there is something to that Christianity. I need that. I want that. That's my prayer.